Zanzi's sporting milestones, moments, and stories. Flashback Fridays with Tabiso Mosea. And let's welcome our guest on the line. Dave, good evening, and thank you very much for being able to speak to us in South Africa tonight. Uh, my pleasure to be, sir. Thank you. Firstly, I know it's going to come, but how long have you been living in the UK now, and how is life that side? <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, only a, a month or so. Oh. Um, well, I'm actually, uh, since I retired from the ICC, I'm actually based in Clittenberg Bay. And uh, I've only really, I've got three sons and two of them live in the UK. Yeah. And uh, the eldest one has just had his uh, second child. So we came over. They asked for a little bit of help. Uh, um, so we've been grandparents for the last, grandparenting for the last <laughs> two two months or so. We'll stay here for a few months and then we'll come back to, to Plet uh, around about June. Oh, okay, great. And what keeps you busy these days? I know you were tasked by CSA to restructure the domestic game. Um, not much. Um, enjoying <laughs> retirement. Uh, yeah, as you say, consulting a little bit to Cricket South Africa, but um, uh, hit the unfortunately hit the 60s mark now. Uh, in fact, 61. So enjoying uh, playing a bit of golf, trying to keep fit, cycling, um, uh, playing a bit of tennis and uh yeah, just trying to enjoy a retired life. And uh, as, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, being grandparents to now two, two little bo- uh, boys. Oh, that's wonderful. And talking about family, I read last year that your son, Michael, had been called up to play for Germany. Is that correct? <laughs> How did that come yes, about? Uh, yeah, my, wi- my wife has got a German passport and, and so have our kids. Mm. Um, and yes, he, he had a, a career with Durham, mm. uh, 10 mm. years or so playing county cricket and then uh, um, wasn't really uh, available much uh, for Germany. But then uh, as, as the Durham contract came to an end, um, he was uh, you know, available for selection and uh, enjoyed a couple of matches that he's played. Found it very interesting playing with a lot of um, people from Afghanistan, actually, uh, that have come across as refugees to Germany mm. and have spent a good three to five years there now. And he says it's quite an eye-opener, the fact that these these uh, young men have traveled, you know, some of them have even walked from from uh, Afghanistan, got to Germany eventually, uh, settled oh. there as refugees, now speak German very fluently. And in fact, uh, very embarrassing for Michael, he can't speak German yet. So uh, I think it's something that he would like to learn. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, it was a keeper just like you, right? Uh, keeper batsman, yes. Um, he didn't keep as much as he, I think he would have liked for Durham. Mm. Uh, they had some good keepers in the team. Um, but yes, he, he did keep wickets, especially as a junior. He played the uh, wicket keeper for Ronda Bosch and uh, before that for Gray, before we left South Africa. Oh, yes. For those who've just joined us, once again, we're in conversation with Dave Richardson, the former Proteus wicket keeper, and of course, ICC as CEO. And talking about that position with the ICC, Dave, was it always the plan for you to get into administration after your playing days? Because we always knew you that you were a lawyer or you were studying law while you were playing. Yes. No, not at all, actually. In fact, um, uh, in the last few years of my cricket career, uh, there was a gentleman, Franco Barakas. He worked for a company called Octagon. Well, in fact, at that time, he had his own uh, sports marketing type company, ESPN Legends. And uh, he'd been saying to me, listen, when you retire, come and uh, join me. He was at that time in Joburg. Uh, I said, yes, I'd like to join, uh, you know, uh, but I don't want to live in uh, Joburg necessarily. I had family in Cape Town, so we opened an office in Cape Town. So I actually started off uh, 
once I'd finished playing cricket, I couldn't face going back to uh, practicing law full-time. So I uh, joined a sports marketing company. They were bought out by a company called Octagon, which is an international company. Mm. So I had a good couple of years there with, with, with them. And then out of the blue, um, I got a call from Malcolm Speed, who was the who had just been appointed as CEO of ICC. He was the former CEO of Australian cricket. Uh, he got the job at ICC, and his plan was to build him from a very small office based in the clock tower at Lords in London, which is at that time was you know it's a little office above the the, what, what, the toilets there at, <laughs> at that one end of the Lords ground. So there were only about I think a handful of people working for ICC at that point. And uh, his mandate from the board, the ICC board, was to to build the ICC brand and and build it up. So I was the first general manager cricket appointed under his uh, under his tutelage. And uh, yeah, the next next minute it was 15 years later, and I was still working for ICC. <laughs> and and what are some of your proudest decisions or, or achievements when you were the CEO of the ICC? When you look back at your tenure, well, um, the. People might remember what what, pe- what became known as the Big Three takeover. Yes, yes. And uh, that w- that sort of hit me between the eyes. I'd, I hadn't really got my feet under the desk when I was summoned to Australia. Um, England were playing Australia at that time in the Ashes, and uh, the 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 chairman of the Indian board, the BCCI, the Cricket Australian board, and the England and Wales Cricket board. They were in Australia, and they summoned me to fly over from Dubai to meet with them. They didn't really say what it was about, but they just said it was important I need to get there. And then they really hit me between the eyes and told me that effectively they wanted, they felt that the ICC was not being, uh, uh, the, the board was not functioning uh, efficiently or, or well enough. Mm. They wanted to take over. They, they felt that they were uh, producing all the money for, for international cricket, and they deserved a bigger slice of the cake. And really, they had a, apart from a few things like uh, they wanted to promote Test cricket. I think they, that was thrown in for my benefit. They they wanted to reorganise the whole financial structure of ICC, and uh, um, and in particular India give themselves a much bigger slice of the cake. England next, and then Australia were really just getting a, a small. Um, increase in, in percentage but I think they went along for the ride just because they didn't want to be left out so that that really hit world cricket uh, straight between the eyes um, uh, the other member countries were almost I wouldn't say blackmailed maybe that's a bit strong but they had no option because India was saying and England was saying listen unless you agree to this new uh, revenue sharing formula well, then we're not coming to your country to tour next, uh, in, as you were planning next year or in a, year, a year's time. Um, and, and of course, everyone knows that the countries really only make money from international tours when countries like India and England tour. Uh, and the simple reason for that is, is they generate revenues from the television money, uh, the television rights sold overseas. So if South Africa play India at home, they get the tele- the money from the television rights, and you you know uh, SuperSport have supported South African uh, cricket f- for a long time, but in rand terms it's not that big a payday. But if you can sell the rights into India to mm-hmm. Star Television or one of these big companies, Sony or, or whatever, they pay significant amounts of money for those television rights, 
and that's where countries make their money. So if England or, or India, uh, it's the same with England. Uh, there's a big television market in England. So if England come and tour your country, there's someone in England who wants to buy those rights and is prepared to play a lot of money. So if India and England say we're not touring, then you're in trouble financially. So they, they kind of played that game with all the member countries and all the member countries signed the new deal. But it was with reluctance. And uh, so the first two or three years of my tenure as a CEO was really trying to renegotiate that deal. And luckily we had a chairman from India, um, uh, Shushank Monohal came on board and he saw the unfairness of it. I think he agreed that uh, maybe those countries should get slightly more, but not as much as they were had organized for themselves. So we, we after about three or four years, that deal was watered down to, to a considerable uh, degree. And the, the revenue sharing arrangement is a, is a little bit uh, fairer now. So I think that was one of the things that really occupied my mind. It was quite stressful. But apart from that, I was very proud with the, the, the way that we've developed the use of technology with umpiring, proud of the way women's cricket has developed over the last few years, uh, has grown. It's really become a, a quite a major sport and quite a big following um, around the world. Uh, those would probably be the highlights that spring to mind immediately. Well, I hope that answers you, Libra. One of our listeners always t- or sends us voice notes about how the big three stole cricket. And uh, he's not happy with that. So, Libra, I hope you've got your answers there. I know you're going to send us a voice note later on. And and pitch preparation, Dave, was it also under your tenure when there was that scandal and, and um, home teams basically preparing pitches that are favorable to them? Um, yes. Um, so, that was really more under my direct uh, responsibility when i was the general manager of cricket we had a we introduced a a pitch monitoring uh process uh with some sanctions attached to that if if a very poor pitch was prepared or a dangerous pitch was prepared and there was always a bit of controversy you know um but i think what we tried to achieve or what we do try to achieve uh at the moment uh, is a fair balance between bat and ball, especially in test cricket. Mm. And, uh, you know, if the pitch spins a bit or it seems a little bit and is in favor of the bowlers, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But where the, the, the contest between bat and ball becomes unfair, that's where uh, the ICC likes to draw the line. And uh, I, at, when I first um, uh, joined ICC, actually, uh, ICC got a lot of criticism for a lot of the pitches around the world being too flat and too batsman friendly. And people were saying that the bat is really dominating the ball and the fast bowlers are, are you know, are, are not in the game anymore. There's no, uh, and, and spin, you know, apart from uh, Shane Warne and Muir Lutheran, uh, there's a dearth of spinners because they just weren't getting the support. So mm-hmm. there was a move actually to encourage more bowler-friendly pitches, especially, as I say, in test cricket. But uh, every now and then, uh, you always... I know it's not an exact science, and the groundsmen, I don't think they necessarily... They might try and prepare a bowler-friendly seeming wicket, let's say, at the Wanderers, but sometimes they just get it wrong, and it it oversteps the mark, and it becomes, you know, too green, and uh, it seems all over the place from the word go, and the batsman just can't bat. That's when the ICC would will step in. But generally... Uh, a low-scoring match, 250 in the first innings, actually creates a very good test match. And as I say, a good balance between bat and ball is what we always strove for. 
So, so you've got no problem with groundsmen preparing a pitch that is favourable for the home side as long as it's not extreme. Exactly. I think. I think it's. I mean, there are some people who say that the groundsmen should be objective and have no fa- favourites when it comes to preparing the pitch. But I, I think that's naive. And no matter where you are in the world, naturally it happens. If you go to the subcontinent, the pitches are really slow, mm-hmm. but they turn and, and they might hold up for the mm-hmm. seamers if they hold leg cutters or off cutters. But uh, I think it's only fair that, and, and, and you, when you grow up on those pitches, you become used to playing on them. Mm-hmm. So it's only fair really that uh, when you play at home, you will be more used to the conditions than the opposition. So I've not got a big issue about preparing pitches to favor your particular bowlers. But as, as you cor- correctly point out, as long as it's not doesn't overstep the mark and there's still a fair balance between bat and ball and the good batsmen will get runs and, uh, you know, um, and the good bowlers will have to work for their wickets as well. Yeah. And just also, how testing was the period of Phil Hughes' death after he was struck by a ball in the head? Because you had to make some tough decisions then. Do you think we've done enough to avoid a similar fatal incident? Can well, we avoid um, it? Yeah, uh, you know, that was a really sad time and he was a very popular player. So it hit a lot of the players uh, very hard. I know at the time um, we were in Dubai and, and New Zealand were touring um they were playing Pakistan in Dubai. And uh, a lot of them knew Clark, I think it was maybe from the IPL or from other tournaments, a lot of the New Zealand players. And they, it was in the middle of the test match, and I think they just said, we, we, we're not there mentally, we, we can't play. And I think they postponed the test for uh, two, two or three days. So I think it hit, it hit everybody uh, very hard, all the players, and uh, it was a big wake-up call. And uh, since then, uh, it obviously uh, forced the helmet manufacturers to make sure that they bolstered the protective capabilities of their helmets. Um, you, you, you would have seen after that uh, they developed uh, helmets which uh, sort of protected the neck area as well as, as the head. So there was an advance in the development of, of helmets. There was an, uh, an advance in the specifications uh, safety specifications that were prescribed for helmets. Um, there was uh, uh, recently they've introduced uh, concussion um, regulations. Yeah. So um, uh, yes, it, it did have a big impact on on on, on world cricket, um, and uh, uh, I think it's it's a safer game now, most definitely. Yeah. And just back to that dominance of the big three, I mean, India, Australia and uh, England, what do you make of the rise of T20 cricket? It's the unstoppable rise of T20 cricket, especially the IPL. Yes. Well, in a, in, in a way, it's, it's complicated things. It's, big, it's created challenges in that, you know, how do you market a game where there are three different forms of the same game? It's, it, it has added complications, but... I, I like to think of it as as a positive. Um, I'm not so sure that if test if, if cricket consisted solely of four day cricket, you know, domestically or five day test cricket, that it would be a sport that would survive well into the future. Mm. Um, so I think that the the 2020 game uh, has changed the sport for the good. It's it's attracted a new audience. It's attracted more females. Uh, and more women and girls to the game. Um, 
it's provided, it's attracted more money, and uh, because it's attracted more fans, it attracts more money, and the players benefit uh, appreciably. So nowadays you can uh, go to the IPL and you can earn money that sort of rivals what the footballers and baseballers, basketball players of this uh, of the world are earning. So it's it's brought tremendous benefits, I think, to the game of cricket. And although there are people, um, I think our research showed that uh, of the how many billion fans of cricket there are, 75 or 80 percent, even higher, maybe I forget the exact figure, mm. are fans of all formats of the game. Mm. So, <coughs> oh, okay. Let's get him to drink some water there, Dave Richardson. Apologies for that. Of the other formats of the game, and mm. in particular test cricket. So I think it's, it's, it's changed the way test cricket is played. It's become much, much more attacking. And uh, it's about better, a better spectacle. So I think overall it's been um, fantastic for the game. Okay, let me just take a question here for you. And there's one more I want to ask about the IPL, but we've got a voice note here. You can send them to 0614104107. And Yaya and KZN and Centric in PE, we are also coming to you. Good evening, Tabison. Good evening to the legend, Mr. David here from uh, East London. I just wanted to speak about your administrative career. Uh, the first question is with... Um, why does he allow members to organize the FTP? Because Ulfatri now is playing large test matches against the test series. Um, in, in terms of the, 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 the consultant, where the, the key things that um, made you choose this um, format of two divisions in domestic cricket? Um, and do you believe that South African cricket is really going to return to its former uh, glory um, in terms of uh, administrative very much, Tamiso. Uh, okay, thanks, Libra. I've got that. I've just made a note of them. I just want to get one more question out the way, Dave. We saw yesterday when the Proteas squad to play Pakistan in a limited over series was announced. Some players will not be part of the T20s because they must go to the IPL. Is that how mm. it should be? What do you make of that? Because you would think it's the other way around. I mean, the, your country comes first, but they're letting mm. them go play IPL cricket. Ideally so, but I think pragmatically they they come to a decision to allow the players to go and play in the IPL. Um, simply because if they refused them permission, perhaps they would retire from oh. international cricket and just focus on IPL. IPL, the contracts that get, that get offered there are just so attractive to the young player. It's not, it's not ideal. <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, I think it's just a fact of, of, of life. Um, I think uh, I think probably international cricket, especially at the T20 level, and the countries are trying as best they can to schedule tours outside of the IPL window. Mm. Pakistan uh, is a slightly different case because they don't uh, the, the BCCI don't allow any Pakistan players to play in the IPL, mm. so they couldn't care less really as where, when they schedule their tours, I suppose. <laughs> so, but all the other teams are. Or members are trying desperately to schedule international tours outside of the IPL window to allow their players to go and play in the IPL. New Zealand, for example, um, are a particular case in point where they've been quite smart. They've made sure that they allow their players, specifically allow their players to go and play in the IPL because they know that they can't afford to really match the contracts that the players can earn playing IPL. So going back to the, the days when uh, Brendan McCullum and them were playing, 
Mm. They earned a big payback at the IPL, but still were <laughs> able to then be uh, available for New Zealand whenever they were playing, specifically in important series or big ICC events. Okay, they used to call themselves the T20 missionaries, some of those players there, especially the West Indians. We're just going to take a quick break. If you've just joined us, we are catching up with former Proteus wicketkeeper and ICC CEO, uh, Dave Richardson. We'll take a break and we'll come back and we're going to talk about his playing career also. Zanzi's sporting milestones, moments and stories. Flashback Fridays with Tabiso Musea. Okay, Libra, you asked a couple of questions. Please allow me to ask one at the moment while I take the other calls. There was a question, Dave, about the restructuring of the domestic game. You are roped in by CSA. You've done that, increasing the number of teams and going back to the original provinces, but also uh, dividing them into, into two pools, basically. Was it a difficult task and what was taken into account in this restructuring process? Um, well, it, it probably the task was probably easier than answering the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the the main overall goal was to make sure that we developed players capable of good enough to play international cricket and for South Africa, therefore, to play at a level uh, amongst the top teams in the world and uh, hopefully be the, the best team in the world. So having domestic competition uh, at the highest level where you had strength versus strength was one of the priorities. The second uh, objective was to make sure that with all the players and all the development of cricket that's going on in South Africa at the moment, especially amongst black Africans and uh, the colored communities down in the Cape and all over, the, all over, was that we provided enough opportunities for everybody uh, no matter where you were playing your cricket, whether it was in Cape Town, whether it was in uh, Gauteng or uh, Titans or even Limpopo, Pumalanga. So there are centers where cricket is becoming more and more popular and we wanted to make sure that no matter where you played, you had a pathway. You could start off at grassroots level, mini cricket, go to your school, have a, uh, a school's league, uh, get selected for your province and then hopefully into the protest. Um, those were probably the two main uh, areas that we focused on. Thirdly, as, an, as a sort of a neutral observer, having been out the country for quite a while, to me, the domestic structure had become very complicated. If I was uh, a cricket fan living in Cape Town, I didn't know whether I was supporting Western Province the, the Cobras, <laughs> the, uh, they had another name for the Mazanzi Super League. The, you know, that was a different team. So, and there's also the Pal Rocks was, around it, there. It had just become a mess. I, and, and, and you've seen how the biggest sports in the world, you know, if you're a fan of the Chicago, uh, the, the Bulls or, mm. or whatever, they don't have one brand for one competition and another brand for another competition. A different competition. Mm. Manchester United, whether they're playing in the Champions League or whether they're playing in the Premier League or the FA Cup, it's Manchester United you support. So there was a, a desire to get back to that, where you can say, okay, I live in Paul, I'm supporting my team, Boerland. We might call them something else, we might call them the Paul Rocks or whatever, mm. but they are my team, they're Boerland. Whether they're playing a four-day game, a one-day game, a T20 game. So that's what we wanted to get back to. And also, we have got 15 provinces. Uh, we didn't want to rule out a province now 
and say, look, forever and a day, you're going to be, you're just a development team. You're never going to have a chance of playing in the top division. So we didn't want to have 15 teams playing against each other. That would be, it wouldn't be strength versus strength. The cricket would not be of a high enough standard at the top level. But we definitely wanted to say to someone like a, a Southwestern Districts, you know, if you're living in Otswin or you're living in uh, George and you're a talented cricketer, you play for your province, Southwestern Districts, and you get a few of your, your mates and you all do well and you can get promoted to Division One, and then be on the big stage. So we wanted to create that, as I say, that, that opportunity for everyone wherever you play in the country. But in the end of, at the end of the day, it must depend on how well you play as a team. Uh, I remember when I was playing back in the day for Eastern Province. And at that time, the Curry Cup or whatever it was called back then, the Nissan Shield, it was dominated really by Transvaal or Gauteng as it is now and uh, Western Province, maybe Natal. Yeah. And when they picked the South African team, lo and behold, the South African team was made up largely of those players from those provinces. And I remember people in PE complaining, how come we never get anybody in the South African team? And Kepler Vessel said, listen, when we win the Curry Cup, then you'll find you'll have four or five Eastern Province players in the, in the team. And it was, it was true. We had a, good season, a couple of good seasons and we did well. And suddenly we had four or five players playing for, for South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Shaw, Mark Rashmir, uh, uh, these, uh, these kind of guys. So... Um, that's the same. With, that's how I think uh, people like Border and these smaller province, uh, provinces, uh, Northern Cape, they mm-hmm. must look on it that way. Let's do well. Let's perform on the field and then we'll get our players in the national team and we'll be in the first division. Okay. But to just have six franchises, they're there no matter what. If they play badly, they're still there the next season. To me, that's not good. That's not going to lead to good cricket and good okay. competitive cricket. Let me take some of the calls, Dave. Yaya from KZN, thanks for holding. Good evening, and Cedric, I'll come to you next. Uh, very good evening to you, Chaviso, and to the legends you've got there. I've got two for you. The first one is for you. What was the legend, Mr. Dave Richardson, affectionately known by commentators and spectators by what name? And the one for him is, did South Africa ever produce a bigger hitter of the ball than Adrian Caper? I will give you the answer, what he was commonly known as. I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. No, no, no. That one I don't know. But I remember Adrian Caper hitting, hitting a ball. I think it was it at St. George's Park where he went into the roof. Or was it at, was, or was it at Newlands? But I remember he was a, a big hitter. What was he called? Mr. Reliable. He will oh, tell you about okay. it. <laughs> okay, nice one. Yeah, yeah. He, and Thank uh, you, sir. Th- thanks for holding. Let me take Cedric from PE. Also, good evening, Cedric. Good evening, Tabi. Uh, uh, yes. My my question is actually to Dave Richardson. I know Dave Richardson. It's, it's not uh, cricket, but it was rugby. I don't know. Does he remember in 1990 he went to go watch a rugby game at at uh, at Cox Ferry between then uh, Vanvogel United and Wallabies, and then a riot broke out. You must remember this was thought in the times of apartheid. Mm. Yumi's two sons were sitting next to me, and the riot came out, and I started to basically almost protect him. My question to him is, why? What made him come and watch that game? Because really, it was it, it was still in the party times, and we were still playing uh, abnormal sport, or like a black sport, you know, the old suckers. <laughs> and you so went to Costin to go watch that game? <laughs> David Rich was at the Edcock Stadium with his two sons. I don't know if the eldest one is you know, grandfather, but I, can, I, I, I was so shocked. And these people start throwing <laughs> bottles past him. And I saw, hey, but this guy really needs, 
He's like, they were the only white people, if I can put it like this, on nice the stadium. One. Thanks, Cedric. <laughs> nice one. There. Dave, do you remember that day? I remember the uh, vaguely, um, yeah. but I don't remember it as, I suppose maybe I wasn't being naive, but I didn't remember it as being as as violent or as dangerous as uh, as your listener is pointing out. Mm. But uh, to answer his question, why would I? I mean, uh, I loved my sport in the wintertime. I loved playing rugby. And I knew, I mean, that's the best thing about growing up in PE was that, especially from a cricket and rugby point of view, Across the race groups, there is a, a, a love of sport, those, partic- those two sports in particular, cricket and rugby. You don't find that in Joburg. You can walk around in Joburg. No one knows who you are. But if you play badly in PE on the weekend and on Monday you go to Greenacres, there would be some <laughs> guy working on the roof at Greenacres shouting to you and saying, why did you play so badly on the weekend? <laughs> so, you know, it, just living in Port Elizabeth, I, I find very interesting and uh, you know, amongst all the communities, they, the love of sport was there. And, you know, they they enjoyed watching Graham Pollock bat uh, as much as anybody. And uh, I enjoyed watching anybody, no matter where they were playing, for who they were playing. Uh, I, if they were playing good rugby, good cricket, I enjoyed watching it. And Yaya wanted to know, has there ever been a clean hitter like an Adrian Caper? Yeah, well, he had a golden period, but I mean, Lance Klusner had yeah, a similar period as well, where he hit the ball incredibly well, and then they worked out uh, some sort of tactic to try and contain him. So, mm. he, he, you know, he's he, but he was still very good. Um, but these days, there's no doubt that the, the equipment has improved, bats in particular, and uh, nowadays the, the way the ball is hit so cleanly, it is amazing to see. But Adrian Caper, funnily enough. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, he came to the World Cup in 1992 and, you know, he probably didn't maybe meet his own expectations, really. Uh, It was just unfortunate, but because the the world didn't see the best of Adrian Caper. Yeah. And t- and 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 T Twenty was after his time. Eh? Would have been a star yeah. in T Twenty cricket. You 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 mentioned that EP team. I mean, uh, the team shows uh, there was Brett Schultz there. There was Eldin Baptiste, Philip M, Mark Rashmia, the opener. How how good was that EP team in your opinion at the time? The one you played in. I think it developed into a really good team, um, and I think people must give credit to Kepler Vessels. You know, um, when I was growing up in as a schoolboy. The Eastern Province team had a lot of stars, people like, you know, Graham Pollock, Chris Wilkins, uh, Dusty Biggs, uh, Kenny McEwen. These guys were tremendous cricketers, and uh, but they never really won the Curry Cup. And then uh, quite a few of them all left at the same time or retired at the same time. Wilkins went to Natal, Pollock went to Joburg, uh, Kenny McEwen went to Australia, I think, uh, for a while. So... Uh, when I came into the Eastern Province team, we were really the whooping boys coming either last or second last in the in the various competitions. Benson and Hedges. <laughs> yeah. And uh, slowly but surely, um, the university played a big role in attracting cricketers to the province. And that's the, the likes of Tim Shaw. And then they came down from Natal. And, uh, and also, you know, just keeping players like um, uh, Philip Am, Mark Rashmir, Dave Callahan in the province, and but when Kepler Vessels arrived, he re- he re- he said, "Look, if you really want to be the top team, you need first of all you need two fast bowlers, and you'll remember the, the likes of Rod McCurdy and Greg Thomas 
came and played for Eastern Province. So he recognized if we haven't got them there uh, from, the, from the region, let's go and find two top quality fast bowlers. Because as soon as you've got those, then you play against teams. They, they won't prepare green tops against you. <laughs> Secondly, he, he realized that uh, we, need, we need two top quality batsmen, international class batsmen. So as simple as that, two bowlers, two batsmen. And of course, he was, he he qualified as one of the international <laughs> class batsmen, and we got Kenny McEwen. And suddenly, the the youngsters like Mark Rashmere, like Philip Am, like Flam Micha could bat around those two. Uh, the bowlers could 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 bowl around McCurdy and Thomas bowling in tandem, and uh, and and that's where Eastern Province got its success. And I suppose it's a formula that hasn't changed over the years. If you've got, you realize what you need to win the competition and you go out and find the players with the temperament and the ability to do that. Okay, you've just reminded me of some names here. Flam Michal with his, did he have red or orange hair? I remember him. <laughs> <laughs> and there was also Rudy Bryson at some point. But let's take a voice note here, one or two. Good evening, Tabeso. You know, this is Dudley Seal here from Port Elizabeth. You know, I was very fond of this guy, Dave Richardson. You know, when EP was in trouble with the betting, they play maybe against any big side. And when uh, Dave Richardson must still come in and Dave Callahan is there, I know there's our hope. I know EP is going to win this match because of Dave Richardson and still Callahan is still there. And really I'm fond. But I just want to know, when Dave Richardson is on the pitch, he's always in a habit like looking down on the pitch and thinking, meditating. I wonder what was Dave Richardson thinking that time when they were in trouble. Thank you very much, Tabiso. Nice show. Thanks for that. Yes. Yes. How do you respond to that, Dave? Uh, I was probably thinking, well, we haven't got a hope in hell yet. <laughs> <laughs> but let's just hang in and see what happens. But I know. I remember um, Peter Pollack. He was the convener of selectors, and he always said it's actually quite nice, especially well in the South African side. I was batting at eight or so, mm. but even for Eastern Province at number six, if you're fifty for four uh, or thirty for four, or whatever it is, and you come into bat and you get out, well, everyone says, "Oh, well, you know, the everyone fails, so you don't lose much." But if you can get runs from that situation, mm. then uh, obviously, uh, the credit will come your way. So, in a way, you've got nothing to lose when when your team is in trouble. So, uh, I always try to just uh, stay positive um, and make sure that I played straight and so that it was. Uh, if I got out, it was would have been, you know, a, a good ball, and uh, try to do the basics correctly. I suppose. Yeah. Um, uh, and even in the know, Protea setup, you always stayed with the tailenders there, uh, with the Paul Adams, with the Alan Donalds. There. I remember the one partnership with Paul Adams. I, th- yes. I think it was against England, was it? Yes, that's yes, right. Yes. Yeah, same same principle, you know. Um, and uh, you know, the, probably my my few regret that I do have is that I went to Maris Brothers, and uh, uh, we were a very small uh, Catholic school in Port Elizabeth, um, and. You know, we would play, if we played against Gray, we played against the Gray third team. Mm. And in fact, we played our matches from half past eight in the morning till half past one. So we almost didn't play full-time matches. And 
my objective really was to, if I got to 20, that was in my mind, that was runs. And, you know, then I was happy to play a few shots. And if I got out for 30 or 35, I, w- I went home a happy fella. <laughs> uh, and that actually, that setting my standards at that level, I think, in retrospect now, was a mistake. So even when I played provincial cricket, if I mm-hmm. averaged 20 odd in the season, being the wicketkeeper in the team, I was happy with that. And it was only when we got back into international cricket that suddenly I realized that to keep my place there, I need to actually score more runs. And uh, it's amazing. It's a good lesson for everybody, really. If you, if you set your targets too low, you'll achieve those targets, but you won't have achieved what you maybe could have done. Mm. So, uh, you know, aim for, you know, get your... Why, if you can get 30, you can get a 50, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe even more. So... Uh, that was a regret of mine that I only did that probably towards the latter half of my career. Yeah, and the game has changed now. The keeper has to be able to bat fast before you can keep. We've seen with India, Rishabh Pant plays ahead of Rima Saha yeah, because, because he's a better batsman, even though Saha is a more technically gifted keeper. Let's just fast forward, Dave, because of time. 92 World Cup, now a year after South Africa were returned to international cricket. Heartbreaking. I remember, I can even feel it today. You were on the other end when the scoreboard went up and said 22 needed of one <laughs> ball because of rain. Yes. I mean, how did it feel and does it still hurt? Uh, it hurts in the sense that uh, it's a missed opportunity. You know, you, you, you don't often get a chance to maybe make the final of the World Cup. And uh, so, you know, we might have done it. We might not have. I know that uh, at that time they had a rain rule. It was before Duckworth Lewis. Yeah. And Duckworth Lewis have told me Actually, you must meet Duckworth Lewis. They are, uh, they are. If you imagine a cricket in a, in a nice way, a cricket nerd, uh, like a, a real professor-looking type. They love cricket, but they they probably don't have much ability themselves with bat and ball. But <laughs> this is what uh, Duckworth and Lewis are like, and they come up with this uh, the Duckworth Lewis method. And if that had been in place, I think we would have needed four or something or three of the last ball. Uh, to win. So that just showed you how close the game was. It could have gone either way. Um, Richard Snell was still to come in. He was an attacking batsman. So, you know, we could have done it. I think Merrick Pringle still to bat. So it could have, it, we could have won. We could have lost. Um, it, it's a missed opportunity. And what did Brian McMillan say to you? Well, uh, he just said, look, I'm not going to get out here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were just uh, we didn't really know what to think and uh, uh, it happened so quickly it only rained for about seven minutes I think that was the problem mm. uh, so we were back on before we expected and uh, um, that was the end of it uh, the only good thing about it was the next day you wake up and you realize it's all over and <laughs> suddenly you can go down to breakfast you've got no there's no butterflies in your stomach you can eat a decent breakfast uh, and that was one of the things I thought of. Well, actually, it's not its not too bad now. We've had a fantastic time, but it, it, it was all over. But as I said, it, it was a missed opportunity. I'm sure everybody still feels the same way. And what drove that team in that World Cup? Was it the occasion, the historic sense of it, or was the team good enough, in your opinion, to actually win the World Cup? I think everything. We didn't know whether we were good enough or not. I think we were very, very determined to show that we we could play cricket and not to disgrace ourselves and to give a, a good account of, of, of ourselves. Um, that was one of the overriding feelings in the team. But we had no idea uh, how good we were. And we used that, we tried to use that to our advantage. 
if because we didn't know how good we were compared to them, and they certainly didn't know how good we were uh, when they played against us. So, uh, you know, we could rely on the element of surprise and the element of them not having any idea of how we played or what our strengths and weaknesses were. Um, the only light-hearted thing I can remember was uh, because Alan Donald had played a lot of county cricket. Mm. Initially in the team talks, we would ask him his opinion of some of the opposing players. <laughs> and he'd start going through the the batting order of the opposition. Pakistan, well, they open with so-and-so. He is very strong if you if you bowl it short and if you pitch it up, he hits you over extra cover. And then after he got to about number five, it sounded like they were going to be scoring 600 in 50 overs. So Kepler realized, <laughs> hold on. We won't, we'll leave Alan Donald out the team talks because we would never have had a chance against the opposition. <laughs> but uh, as I say, that was that counted in our favour because they had no idea what we were like. Mm. And how did you take missing out on, on, on the 96 World Cup four years later because you had, I think you broke your finger just before that World mm-hmm. Cup. Yeah. And still from yeah, came Yeah, very disappointing. Very disappointing. I was hopeful that, okay, some miracle could happen and I'd be fit in time, but uh, broken bones take time and... Uh, yeah, it was it was it was hard to be sitting on the sidelines. Um, I, I was desperate to get back into the team after that. But uh, now again, it's probably more so in now, in these years, these latter years, where I can look back of, on a career and say, "Oh, it was a pity I didn't go to two World Cups at least." And just looking at your career, a, a lot has been a lot has been said about the fact that you only had two stampings. Was it just two in your <laughs> t- t- test career? I'm not sure how many actually, but I remember the first one came after quite a few tests. Yeah, 119 or 20 uh, tests there. Venkatesh Prasad. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, uh, in my defense. (laughs) It's understandable. We never, we never relied on spin really. Um, and it was only Paul Adams when he came into the, into the team that, you know, we, we had a spinner who was taking the, the ball away from the right handed batsman and, uh, I spent more of my time standing up to the stumps. Before that, we used spinners really only for one-day cricket or yeah. mostly for one-day cricket where they were used in a defensive role. And even in test matches, if they came on to bowl, it was to try and keep batsmen tight and not bowl in an attacking fashion. So, uh, again, it's something that uh, I had to work on even late in my career, uh, standing up to the spinners, mm. but it was something I really enjoyed. And you had a good, well, part, I don't know if it's a partnership or what, a relationship or combination with Alan Donald. I don't know if it still stands, but at some point you were the most successful bowler wicket keeper combination there. Was there a, a, anything you can put your finger to? Was there anything special there? Or was it just too quick and they could just nick him behind? I think, yeah, the latter. <laughs> um, you know, the, people ask, you know, speed is relative, I suppose. Before, before the, the West Indies or we got to know the West Indies, you know, we used to think Clive Rice at the Wanderers or Garth Leroux in Cape Town, they were quick. Mm. And then suddenly, you know, even in those Rebel tours, you had people like Sylvester Clark and Israel Mosley. And suddenly our perception of speed changed. And uh, we realized what real uh, quick bowlers, uh, how quick they can be. And and Alan Donald was one of those where if you if he was bowling in the nets, then it was better to have throwdowns. You know, he was just a little bit too quick, especially in the nets. Bowlers always seem a little bit faster, but yeah. he had that extra pace. And he was, he's, in England, his reputation was in, uh, in county cricket. Yeah. You know, they, the batsmen almost were walking before he even ran into bowl. 
Um, so he, he went through a phase in his career where he was really fast. And, uh, and that adds an extra uh, element of, of excitement to keeping wicket because it's just not your run of the mill. It's, I suppose, like keeping to a really good spinner. But mm. keeping to someone with that extra pace was uh, something I really am, am grateful for the opportunity. And you do have a test 100 against New Zealand, Dave Richardson. But where does the 93 you made in the previous test in that chase of 411 at the Wanderers rank? Mm. Well, uh, yeah, the, I had a few 80s. I was talking earlier about, you know, if I got to 30, I was sort yeah. of happy with myself. And and it was when I got to that 93 that I really thought that was such a wasted opportunity. I should have really knuckled down and made sure I got three figures and be more determined. Mm. Um, so the, uh, as I said, anything past 40, it was a big bonus for me and I was just enjoying my shots and to get to close to a hundred, I just, uh, the, the hundred in Cape Town will be, will be special for that reason alone. Yeah. And was there, as we wrap up, was there a particular reason you preferred brown gloves? <laughs> no, I don't know why. I think maybe <laughs> the sponsor thought, well, you know, the guy in these thirties and that, he needs to get some old vintage gloves, and the brown made them look <laughs> older than they were. But uh, uh, Gary came out with some nice gloves, which they put my signature on. So I was happy to take them, whether they were, they were brown or not. Eventually, I told them, "No, listen, spruce it up a bit, put a little bit of gold in there as well." <laughs> and what do you make of the standard of keeping in the game at the moment? We've spoken about how it's evolved that you have to be able to bet first. Yeah, it's complete. It's changed completely. I think it started to change when. Uh, Adam Gilchrist yeah. came and uh, replaced Ian Healy for Australia. Suddenly, the the focus was really on uh, doing an adequate job with the gloves, but uh, batting. Sangakara was another one, great batsman, and uh, someone who became a very competent wicketkeeper. But uh, it's just the mindset has changed. You know, in our in our day, I would say that keepers. If we dropped a ball, whether it was a ball thrown in by someone from the crowd, it, it, it got to us, you know. We didn't want to leave, we did leave, let buyers go through, but we didn't want to let any buyers go through. If someone bowled down the leg side and it went for four wides as it does now today, that would, I, would, I would be upset about that. And that was the mindset that all keepers, I think, had at, at international level and even provincial level. Now it's changed. Now people are much more seemingly forgiving of keepers. If they miss the odds dumping, uh, you know, it's, it's almost no one bats an eyelid. And that's because they, they, are, they are regarded really as batsmen who keep. And uh, I think it's, it's great for the, for the game in that the balance of the teams, it's, they play as an extra all-rounder. Uh, it, allows, um, it just allows for more attacking cricket. You know, your keeper batting at number seven or eight in a test match, people know they can still score hundreds and they can score them quickly because they are all-rounders. They don't play with the same reservations that a pure batsman uh, might do. So I think it's been great for the game. Okay, and you've been great tonight, Dave. Thank you very much for finding the time uh, to speak to us. I know you're helping the kids move house there, but we really appreciate the time that you've given us all the way from the UK. It's been a pleasure talking to you about your career as an administrator and also looking back at your at your playing days. And that's what we wanted to do to bring you on and just uh, highlight what you've achieved in the game and what you're still doing. And most importantly, just to give you the respect that you deserve, sir. No, thank you very much, Tabi. So it's been a, uh, been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Dave Richardson. We're just out of time. There's so much that we can talk about, but it is 7 o'clock. We're going to have to go to news.